Hey everybody, hope you're having a good Thanksgiving. Jeffrey Rickman here in the studio. This is the Plain Spoken Podcast channel. This is the series on the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline for the Global Methodist Church. This is our eighth or ninth episode, don't correct me, TJ, and uh, we, uh, we're we going to go over more of it today. So I'm, in, I'm joined this morning by TJ Owens. Hey, uh, good morning, TJ. Good morning or nights or whenever you're watching this. Oh yeah, people yeah. do watch this at different times. What's an opening thing that you think would be good for TJ Owens to say before we dive into it? Oof. Um, just get ready for more tedious board stuff. Um, but it's good to know. Good stuff. We good are going to start off with know. when he says board, he doesn't mean boring. He means like committees and right, boards yeah. in the church. Uh, we've gotten to go along for the ride and watch TJ go through quite a transformation <laughs> where he started off with such irritation with the uh, minutiae and the details of the transitional book of doctrines and discipline, and he's come around kind of to a place of, okay, I can see why this would be needed. So last week we covered the uh, charge conference, the church council, the nominations and leadership development committee, the staff parish relations committee, feel like there's one other that we I'm saying this lot. is it was a lot and um, we definitely didn't absorb everything but there is a lot to absorb no I, I think those were the only ones that we covered okay so there are several mandatory committees unless you have a single board model which it makes provision for uh, there are several boards and committees. We're going to start on page 41 of the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline. It should look like this on your screen. It's uh, paragraph 346 on page 41. We're about halfway through the document. Today, we're going to cover two more mandatory committees. And then it gets... Uh, so it's interesting, but you have to be in the right state of mind for it. So uh, get in that state of mind. It's it's actually really important to understand all of the business that needs to be done to, to oversee the business of the church well. Um, but then it gets into really interesting stuff around apportionments, about involuntary, uh, involuntarily removing churches from the denomination. The power structure is different in the GMC than in the UMC, so some of that stuff comes immediately after this. So you're already seeing some like blatant differences between... United Methodist Church and Global Methodist Church in this section. Oh, absolutely. Well, so I don't know that we're going to be able to make it out of the committee section today. We'll see. I, I hope we do because <laughs> it's really interesting. But uh, yeah, there there are differences, not in the major committees of the local church, but there are major differences in how the power structure works, how accountability works, how money works. Um, and so I, I actually got to have a conversation with Karen Nicholas this morning who's the chair of the Transitional Leadership Committee for the whole denomination. She's a very influential person, and she was able to uh, tell me why it is that they structured some things the way that they did. Very interesting information. Hmm. Uh, other cool stuff we've gotten to see TJ do is take on responsibility for some things in the local church, the constituency role and other stuff. that he's, It's been a good thing for him to, to understand kind of how things fit together, and he's going to help me help others understand how it all fits together, because there's no point having a good system if you don't know how to use it, right? So that's what you should keep in mind as you're making your way through this stuff with us. It's not knowing it just to know it. It's we've inherited a system. We've been given a system that if we don't learn how to navigate it, then we can reproduce a lot of the harm that was done 
where we came from. from. So uh, get your thinking cap on, get your sober cap on. We're going to dive in on paragraph 346. TJ's already let me know he is too tired to read today, so get used to my voice. You're going to hear it a lot. It's been a long night. Paragraph 346, this is the Board of Trustees. Unless otherwise provided for in the governance structure of a local church, within each congregation of the GMC, there shall be a board of trustees consisting of at least five professing members of the church representing the gender, race, and age of the congregation, provided that all members shall be of legal age as determined by relevant and controlling civil law. The pastor of the congregation shall be a member with voice but without vote of the Board of Trustees and may not be counted for the purpose of achieving a quorum or calculating a majority. So already there's a difference here. Quorum is not just however many people show up. There has to be uh, a majority of the actual members showing up. So in the United Methodist Church, if a third of them showed up, was that a, a quorum automatically or what? So I'm saying there's a difference between this and the other committees we've covered in the TLC. Oh, okay. So remember, they they adopted almost verbatim all the stuff about committees from the UMC because, as Kara told me this morning, they didn't see it as their right to just go ahead and invent something new out of whole cloth. Rather, take the structure people are used to. They can augment it as they see fit. Um, but but we're largely starting off with the same system. The thing I'm pointing out is one would think that all the boards and committees of the church operate similarly to one another. They don't. There are actually many differences between the board of trustees and the other boards in the church. Yeah, how many people just automatically assume that they're kind of the same in just different roles? Yeah. I mean, that's what I would assume, having not been on any of them. Yeah, we're going to—the board of trustees is very different from the others, and then the finance committee— is, is very different from the others. They all have a different nature, uh, overlapping purposes. And and uh, it's good to overlap in case one party doesn't do what they're supposed to be doing. You have somebody else do it. Right. But even so, it's complicated and hard to understand the checks and balances at play and the overlap and duplication. So we'll get into that more, but uh, you also see the concern for inclusion here as it talks about how Different right. genders, races, and ages need to be represented on the board. Well, and I think we just landed on that was a, a holdover from the UMC, wasn't it? That they just haven't addressed and hopefully will address at some point. Yeah. Before yeah. adopting it. The convening so. conference is next year. We'll see if there's any kind of legislation on the table to just remove the inclusion concern. Yeah. That should just be one whole like bill or something. Like, get rid of this. It could be. The problem with that would be it could easily be cast as the obvious bigotry of the uh, deplorables that left the UFC, you know? Sure. Could be. Own it. <laughs> oh, no, the United Methodists are going to call us names. That, well, they are. And Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're right. It's really hard not to care when people are calling you names. Sure. Yeah, no. I... Yeah, it sucks, but they're going to do it regardless, so... Who cares? It. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, we're still in paragraph 346. This is point one, election of trustees. Members of the board of trustees of each local congregation may be elected by the charge or church conference to a three-year term, equally divided into three classes with one-third elected each year. So this is the format that the others are in. Here's what's different, though. 
A member of the Board of Trustees may be reelected for no more than one additional term, and no member may serve longer than six consecutive years. So if you remember some of the language before, they said nobody should occupy. <laughs> Excuse <Rush> me. <laughs> a position for longer than one. Once they get off, they need to rotate off and at least be off for a year before coming back on. That's how I recall it. Here it says you can have a, a person on there for a total of six years. Um, I don't know if it said this in another part. Who who elects the board of trustees? Nominations committee. Okay. Nominations committee. We talked about this last week. That's yeah. That's what I thought. Decides on who who's on everything, and the pastor chairs that committee. So in that sense, that's why the pastor is the most powerful person in the church because they decide who serves on what committees, and there's a structure designed to get people to rotate out, so as to keep them from accumulating too much power. Who elects that committee? The nominations committee. Yeah. Who elects the nominations committee? Did we go over that? I don't Surely know we over. did, but I'm not remembering who it is that that elects them. Here, I'll, I'll go back up there because that's important to... That would be on page 38 or 39. Uh, it's 344, nominations... And leader, well, that's the nominations of leadership development. It's the same, the same one, one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. As the charge conference determines, there may be elected annually by that conference and nominations and leaderships. So the charge conference. Yeah, the char charge conference does it, which is interesting because the charge conference is only in session once. So hmm. I guess you have to, somebody has to come up with like a draft of like who's willing to serve on nominations before the charge conference session. Yeah. Maybe. But it doesn't say who comes up with that, I don't think. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah. The pastor does. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure we went over it. Go back and watch that video. All right. We are now at point two, vacancies and removal of trustees. Should a trustee withdraw from the membership of the local church or be excluded therefrom, trusteeship therein shall automatically cease from the day of such withdrawal or exclusion. Should a trustee of a local church or a director of an incorporated local church be unable to carry out their responsibilities, or when he or she refuses to execute properly a legal instrument relating to any property of the church when directed to do so by the charge conference, and when all legal requirements have been satisfied in reference to such execution, the charge conference may, by majority vote, declare the trustees or director's membership on the board of trustees or board of directors vacated. I think that's polite language for you can fire them. Vacancies occurring in the Board of Trustees shall be filled by election for the unexpired term. Such election shall be held in the same manner as for trustees. A vacancy other than the preceding, preceding that occurs ad interim may be filled until the next charge conference by the church council. So you notice that language sounds very legal. Very particular. Right. That's because this committee is dealing with all the legal property right. endowment stuff. So there's a lot of money involved here, so you need to have a very clear procedure for how people get on, how people get off. how All this stuff matters. It has huge ramifications in the millions of dollars in some big churches. So That makes sense. Yeah. It's nice to have in there. I wonder how often people abide by it, but... Well, yeah, I mean, how many, if you've already got a church structure set up, 
in a specific church that's just coming into the GMC, like how much of this are they going to adopt or are they just going to keep doing what they've been doing? Well, if they came if out of the different. UMC, they should already be in compliance with this. But the the real, I wonder, man, I, I don't even know if there would be a way to study this. I wonder to what degree churches coming out of the UMC were even in compliance with the UMC. Right. It seems to me that most churches just kind of throw together what works based on the Well, yeah, especially if they're smaller. Like maybe the larger ones, because they they're, would probably be under more scrutiny from the annual conference, but smaller ones... They're not as important, so I think with, with big, rich churches, conferences leave them alone because they want the money to flow. True. Could be the case. Yeah, I guess it would just kind of depend on the maybe the district superintendent and the bishop and how much they pay attention and are worried about it. Yeah, I've, I've wondered if there were a lot of churches that had it all together until disaffiliation season, and then all these annual conferences started focusing on disaffiliation, and a lot of the order and structure just fell by the wayside. I suspect that happened. That happened with this church, honestly. Um, a lot of things fell apart that were maintained until a couple of years ago. Mm. Let's get back into the book. Um, we're at point three, organization. The Board of Trustees may organize as follows. Point A, within 30 days after the beginning of the calendar or conference year, whichever applies to the term of office, the Board of trustees shall convene at a time and place designated by the chairperson or the vice chairperson for the purpose of electing officers of the board for the ensuing year and transacting any other business properly before it. Clear enough? Sure. Okay. Yeah. The board shall elect from its members to hold office for a term of one year or until their successors shall be elected. A chairperson, vice chairperson, secretary, and, if need requires, a treasurer, provided, however, that the chairperson and vice chairperson shall not be members of the same class, and provided further that the offices of secretary and treasurer may be held by the same, may not... No, may be held by the same person. Um, so you can have a secretary and a treasurer of the same person, but not the chair and vice chair. The... Offices of secretary and treasurer. Oh, they may be held by the same person. Okay, yeah. I was thinking financial secretary and treasurer, but it's just the secretary for the committee. Right. Okay, yeah, we're going to get to financial secretary and treasurer do op two different things. If you combine the two, you can have corruption, so these two need to be complete. Mm. Okay, I'm glad we, we covered that. The charge conference may, if it is necessary to conform to the local laws, Substitute the designations president and VP in place of chairperson and vice chairperson. Point C, where necessary as a result of the incorporation of a local church, the corporation directors, in addition to electing officers as provided above, shall ratify and confirm by appropriate action and, if required by law, elect as officers of the corporation the treasurer elected by the charge conference in accordance with the provisions of the doctrines and discipline. If more than one account is maintained in the name of the corporation and any financial institutions, each such account and the treasurer thereof shall be appropriately designated. A bunch of legalese, I think, just saying you need to have a clear chain of command. Every role needs to be designated explicitly in writing. Makes sense. Okay, uh, I'm glad it... Okay, very good. Uh, point four, meetings. The board shall meet at the call of the pastor or of its chairperson 
at least three times per year at such times and places as designated in the meeting notice at least one week prior to the appointed time of the meeting. So I think in other places it said 10 days, but here for the trustees, you only need one week. Waiver of a notice may be used as a means to validate meetings legally where the usual notice is impracticable. A majority of the members of the Board of Trustees shall constitute a quorum. So there was the majority language about quorum that's a little bit different. All right, powers and limitations, point four, point five, excuse me. The board shall have the following powers and responsibilities. Point A, oversight and care of all real property owned by the local church and all property and equipment acquired directly by the local church or by any group, board, class, commission, or similar organization connected with it. The board shall not, however, violate the rights of any local church organization elsewhere granted in the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline, nor prevent or interfere with the pastor in the use of any of the said property for religious services or other proper meetings or purposes recognized by the law, usages, and customs of the church. Reflecting the historic understanding of Methodism, pews in the global Methodist church shall always be free. Wow. Say that, huh? I said, wow, that's it's interesting. I guess there was, I mean, yeah, so it makes sense that there would be a... Uh, be, they put that in there because there was an issue with them selling pews. Yeah, at one point. Yeah, that Which, was. I don't know if that once was upon a, a time a kind of common thing in in uh, at least mainline denominations. Yeah, I was going to say I don't think that was just a Methodist thing that was kind of all over. Yeah, if you've I remember I lived in Boston for a time and I went to the oldest congregational church there, and they had pews, but they were divided off in like booths where entire oh. families could like own a a booth where they and their kids would. <laughs> sit and enjoy worship as like a family. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that was a way of uh, raising funds for the church where, right. you know, uh, people had their tithe, but then they could pay uh, <clears throat> above that for special access, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess it I mean, it could have come out of a good place and obviously eventually turned into a classist problem real quick. Yes. Like, yeah, if you're just trying to raise money for the church, like, well, yeah. Got all these pews. You want the nice pew? You can you can pay for it, and we can raise some money. And then it's just like, oh, now all the rich people get to sit in the front, and the uh-huh, the yeah. poor's are in the back. Yeah, yeah. Or even if they get a pew, like he might stand. When I was in Idaho, there was a lady in her church who died. I, I don't remember if it was United Methodist Church or not, but they she gave so much money to the church and designated more in her will. So that they made a bronze statue of her and put it in her pew, so that nobody would ever sit in her seat ever again. Wow! Yeah, that's. Uh, <laughs> Can you imagine? I no, I can't. Like it's one thing to make a statue, but then to put it in her pew. People get people oh. get possessive about their pews, man. Uh, yeah. There have been so many nice little old church ladies that you do not sit in their pew. Right. They will turn into a different person. You leave her pew alone. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, The other part in here is uh, the territorial stuff that can develop between a pastor and a board of trustees. Power can uh, the pastor can can uh, call can convene the the trustees, but also the pastor doesn't have to run use of the facility by the trustees. Yeah, it says they're uh, if the the pastor's using this stuff, you can't get onto him for using this stuff in the way that you don't like, just because you're on the trustees board. I think that's. But then it gets iffy with uh, 
You can't interfere with the pastor in the use of any of the said property for religious services or other proper meetings or purposes recognized by the law, usages, and cut. Okay, how do you define that? How yeah. do you decide what is proper and then what is not, you know? It's easier if you just say, pastor's the boss, let the pastor do what he wants with the church. If there's a problem, file it with the presiding elder. Yeah. But instead, it, it enters this language that can be litigated. All right, let's go to point B. The use of the local congregation's facilities or properties by an outside organization may be granted by the Board of Trustees after consideration of whether the purposes and programs of that organization are consistent with the values of the congregation and the Global Methodist Church. How on earth would this be done? I... The board's supposed to run run it by them. I guess so they somebody's got to run it by the board before somebody can use the the facility. So I mean that absolutely. But then like okay, there's there's a local prayer group not associated with the church that wants me here. Okay, right. that's probably appropriate. There's a local you know what uh, Kimbo or you know kickboxing class that wants to meet. Uh, well, that doesn't that's really align. Little, yeah, that's a little uh, more. Outside the scope, I guess. Yeah. I mean, everybody agrees we shouldn't have any kind of like uh, evil uh, KKK meetings or something in the church. Okay. Yeah. But then there are a lot of civic groups that really don't have anything to do with Jesus. Does well, that? and how many? You've got the problem now in the UMC with like drag shows and uh, all, oh, all yeah. kinds of stuff. Yeah. Which that is a real thing. That is a real thing. I can show you four places at least where that's actually happened. So people saying that's not a real thing, they, they don't know what they're talking just, about. Yeah, just follow the Reconciled Ministries Network. They've got a Facebook page where they put it all over there. Like, it's all over the place. I think it's not happening. You're, you're blind. So, yeah, in the UMC, at least this provision is not being protected. All right, point C. Should the congregation possess a parsonage offered to the pastor for housing, the chairperson of the Pastor Parish Relations Committee, the chairperson or designee of the Board of Trustees, and the pastor shall make an annual review of the church-owned parsonage to assure proper maintenance and to give immediate resolution to parsonage issues affecting the family's health and well-being. The parsonage is to be mutually respected by the pastor's family as a property of the church and by the church as a place of privacy for the pastor's family. So you'll see it references another paragraph there. The board of trustees are responsible to ensure timely resolution of parsonage problems affecting the health and well-being of the pastor or pastor's family and shall provide the parsonage, that the parsonage be maintained in good condition. We've already talked about this, and I forget what other section, but it had mostly the 345. same language. Okay. All right, that's the one it's referring back to. Yeah, right on. Okay. This is point D, and I need a break, so you got to cover this one, buddy. Subject to the direction of the charge conference, the Board of Trustees shall receive and administer all bequests made to the local church, uh, shall receive and administer all trusts, and shall invest all trust funds of the local church in conformity with laws of the country, states, or political unity in which the local church is located. Nevertheless, upon notice of the board of trustee notice to the board of trustees, the charge conference may delegate the power, duty, and authority to receive, administer, and invest bequest, invest bequest trusts and trust funds to a permanent endow, endowment committee or to a local church foundation. So, what one would would assume is 
if there is a finance committee, the finance committee would be responsible for all the money stuff. But no, they only oversee income and expenses. Trustees oversees investment of long-term designated funds and all these trusts and bequests. So they would, okay, so the, the money that comes in, there's a, a set-aside long-term um, investment fund? Is that? Not all churches not, have one. Okay. But for churches for whom bequests are made or they have ex, ex, extra money that they would like to invest rather than find something to spend it on, the trustees are responsible for establishing the endowment fund, maintaining the endowment fund. Does any more money get put in? When is it taken out? How is it used? All De of that stuff is Define bequest. What would what would uh, be considered a bequest? My, my understanding is it's usually in someone's trust. So when someone dies, and they, give money they can the leave. Church. Yeah. And okay. I, hope, I hope to say something about that in worship today. I haven't said anything about it. Which would be time. different than a regular just tithing and giving. Well, yes, yes. So there's usually a general fund that everybody tithes into. Right. A lot of churches have directed funds or designated funds that they maintain alongside of that to, to fund other ministries or initiatives. But then there are also, you know, when someone dies, you can have a memorial fund that things go into to honor them. Right. And most churches kind of like just spend whatever they've got in that, but you mm -hmm. can also do what our church has done and invest that in endowment fund and... Uh, put stipulations on that. There are also people that live under. They'll they'll have financial arrangements while they are alive, where they live off a principal balance, but excess goes to the church, and then when they die, even more of it goes to the church. So I think there are bequests that exist prior to one's dying. I, I think bequests might just be a broader term for directed funds rather than giving to the general fund. I gotcha. So they, these would be funds that they, the person giving designates, this is supposed to be for something besides the general fund, whether it's a endowment or whatnot. Yeah. Well, and, and the church council, I think, can take excess funds in the general fund and say, hey, trustees, put this in the endowment fund and manage yeah, it. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. Okay. So that's what we've done. Okay. Let me all just finish out this section. Okay. Um, e. The board shall conduct an annual accessibility audit of their buildings, grounds, and facilities to discover and identify any existing physical, architectural, or communication barriers that impede the full participation of people with disabilities and shall make plans and determine properties for the elimination of all such barriers. Okay, so you've got a disabled person. you got some stairs in the way they can't get in. That makes sense. Yeah. That's the responsibility of the board of trustees to... Yeah. Do that annually? Yeah, annually yeah. review entrances, whatever the entrances is just a part of it. It could be a, a million different things. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. They actually have accessibility audits that you can download and fill out. They help you think of everything all right. down the line. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have no it's very particular, that, yeah. but yeah, it's really a helpful thing. It's, yeah. you know, people don't naturally think of others that are not like them, you right. know, so it's really helpful to have things like this in place to just help you think about, okay, if I were in a wheelchair, how would I navigate this? Yeah, space? that was one of the biggest problems with our second building was the stairs. They didn't really have a, uh, the people were getting older and, and just a massive set of stairs at the entrance um, that's. Yeah, this was, this was something common to most churches that were built in the early 20th century. They had a Methodist home extension office. I forget. They had these magazines they would send around to ch church communities and say, here's blueprints, and we can send you everything you need to build this, 
but they were often basement churches where mm-hmm. you could take stairs down into the basement or up into the first floor, but you couldn't go straight in. So these buildings started falling apart, one, but two, they couldn't be navigated by the very people who built them because they couldn't do these stairs. So you had a lot of churches that built elevators, and then you had other churches like ours that just demolished the original structure and had to build something new altogether. Right. Makes sense. All right. Uh, Let's see. Six, annual report. The board shall annually make a written report to the charge conference in which shall be included the following. A, the legal description and the reasonable value of each parcel of real estate owned by the church. Okay. No, nothing there. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. Oh, yeah. yeah. Every every year, here's our property. Here's what we own. Here's a reasonable value of what it's worth. Yeah, I don't think they expect you to have it, like, assessed in, in any formal sense. Yeah. I mean, every now and again, I'm sure it's good to do that to know how much each parcel of land is yeah, worth. Yeah, and if you don't like, if you're not buying anything, it may go up or down by a couple thousand dollars, depending on what you've got. Uh-huh. So, okay. Okay. Cool. B, the specific name of the grantor in which each in each deed of conveyance of real estate to the local church. C, an inventory and the reasonable value of all personal property owned by the local church. D, the amount of income received from any income-producing property and a detailed list of expenditures in connection therewith. E, the amounts received during the year for building, rebuilding, remodeling, and improving real estate and the itemized statement of expenditures. Outstand F, F is outstanding capital debts, payoff date, and how contracted. G, a detailed statement of the insurance carried on each parcel of real estate, indicating whether restricted by co-insurance or other limiting conditions and whether adequate insurance is carried. H, the name of the, the custodian of all legal papers of the local church, where they are kept, oh, and where they are kept. I, a detailed list of all trusts in which the local church is the beneficiary, beneficiary, specifying where and how the funds are invested. And finally, J, an evaluation of all church properties, including the chancel areas, to ensure accessibility to persons with disabilities, and when acceptable, and when applicable, a uh, plan and timeline for resolving barriers to accessibility. That's paragraph 346.5e. So the chancel, a lot of people don't know this nowadays, but that's the raised area where worship leaders usually are. So it's saying that there is no place in the church that should be inaccessible to people with disabilities. Make sure that they can lead worship as well and get up to the front as needed. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and then all of the other ones just, I mean, basic. Yeah. Like, here's where the paper's at for the property that we own. Um, this is the professional, real deal, actual assets. This is the crew that's responsible for tracking yeah. all of it, administering all of it, reporting all of it. This is this is the big boy committee. Yeah. Or big girl. <laughs> Sometimes, you know... It is funny. A lot of times I've I've seen churches kind of segregate by men on trustees and women on finance. Um and I don't know what that is, but uh for some reason trustees seems to draw the men. That's weird. <laughs> Who's on our trustee committee? Well, men we don't women? have one. We went to a single board now. Oh, okay, right. But then we we designated individuals to be on the trustees. So ours are 
the ones that I that have trustee next to their name are Carl and Mike, I think. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> Excuse me. And but so all three men. All right. Let's go on to the finance committee. I'm sorry I'm under the weather, y'all. All right, paragraph 347, Finance Committee. As the charge conference determines there may be elected annually by that conference a finance committee or its equivalent composed of the committee chairperson, the pastor, a lay member of the annual conference, the chairperson of the church council, the chairperson or designee of the pastor parish relations committee, a representative of the board of trustees to be selected by that board, the chairperson of the ministry group on stewardship, if any, the lay leader, the financial secretary, the treasurer, the church business administrator, if any, and other members to be added as the charge conference may determine. So you're already seeing the composition here is very different. It's not just a bunch of people put together by the nominations committee. Rather, it's representatives from all of the different boards and committees in the church. Interesting. Yeah. Alternately, alternatively, the committee's responsibilities may be assigned to a different group. Okay. The chairperson of the finance committee shall be a member of the church council. The financial secretary, treasurer, and church business administrator, if paid employees, shall be members without vote. The positions of treasurer and financial secretary may not be combined and held by one person. So that's what I was taking issue with earlier there. It's not secretary, it's the financial secretary. These are two different positions. What are the problems that arise if those are the same? So one is writing checks, and then the other is cashing them. Is that right? Uh, but what, um, oh, no, no. So one is a signatory on checks, and one is writing the checks. So you can't have the same person writing the checks and signing the checks. Otherwise, they can just write checks to themselves. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. I think I, I think that's true. <laughs> um, all right, and the persons holding these two positions should not be immediate family members, hopefully for obvious reasons. No immediate family members of any appointed clergy may serve as treasurer, finance committee chair, financial secretary, counter, or serve in any paid or unpaid position under the responsibilities of the finance committee. These restrictions would apply only to the church or charge where the clergy serves. I'm actually thinking one, so you can have multiple signers. Uh, it doesn't have to be one of those positions. So I'm thinking one is the one who generates the reports and one is the one who pays the bills. So there, whoever is watching over how money is spent cannot be the person spending the money. I think that's that's what the deal is. Anyone who, uh, I'm, I'm kind of coming up with this stuff on the fly, but I talked about it in the last episode the United Methodist Church put out a whole series of booklets called Guidelines where it lines out every single position, how everything is supposed to fit together. It's it's really helpful documents. So uh, you might look into getting those as this structure largely reflects the same thing. All right, we're at point two, now on page 44. The Finance Committee shall oversee the stewardship of financial resources as their priority throughout the year, seeking as part of the Ministry of Discipleship to move members toward tithing and beyond with an attitude of generosity. So there is a responsibility here for informing the congregation and helping them have a certain ethic around tithing and giving to the church. I feel like this probably should have been like the first point, not who can be on it. 
Like it just makes sense to me. Like, okay, here's the financial committee. Here's what they're, what they're in charge of, what they do. Here's who can be on it rather than here's who can be on it. Here's what they do. Yeah. But that's well, just for, I mean, going back over all of these, it's stipulated who, how they get put on and who they are and what the positions are before it right. even gets around yeah. to duties. Duties just, come last for some reason. Yeah, it's weird to me, but whatever. Yeah. At least, at least they say it. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah. Okay. Point three, all financial requests to be included in the annual budget of the local church shall be submitted to the finance committee. Finance Committee shall compile annually a complete budget for the local church and submit it to the church council for review and adoption. The Finance Committee shall be charged with responsibility for developing and implementing plans that will raise sufficient income to meet the budget adopted by the church council. It shall administer the funds received according to instructions from the church council. The committee shall carry out the church council's directions in guiding the treasurer and financial secretary. So even though the uh, trustees decide where and how things are invested, finance committee is still responsible for generating the annual budget. So they, they're in charge of generating the annual budget and then developing and implementing plans that will raise sufficient income to meet the budget adopted by the church council. Okay, so the church council develops the annual budget, and then it's the financials uh, committee's responsibility to then raise those funds? Or figure out how they're going to get them? Yeah, sort of, yeah. So most, well, not anymore, but once upon a time, almost all United Methodist churches had an annual like fundraising campaign, which really is done this time of year because you want to capitalize on people get more generous at the end of the year and you right. want to get some of that money. Uh, that's kind of fallen by the wayside, but for big churches still, there's like an annual finance drive to say, right, know, yeah. well, and even what we'll do, we'll send out end-of-year giving statements just to show how much each individual is given so that, hey, you know, is this what you're sure you want to give or do you maybe want to give a little bit more? So that's that's the sort of thing that the finance committee, if there is one, is responsible for. But there's also like actual curricula that you can, and preaching series and stuff that, that churches will pay money for and adopt this plan and go through. It's stewardship plans, I think they're usually called. So uh, yeah, that's the committee responsible for proposing to the church council the budget to be adopted, and then also educating the church as to the importance of tithing and adopting and implementing any fundraising stewardship campaigns that they have. Okay. Somebody's got to do it. Here's the council that's going to do it. Yeah. It's nice. And once again, uh, we often put all this stuff on the pastor. Right. Yeah. No, here's the, here's the group responsible for it. The pastor's on that group. But... All right, point four. The committee shall designate at least two persons not of one immediate family residing in the same household to count the offering. They shall work under the supervision of the financial secretary. A record of all funds received shall be... (coughs) (coughs) Sorry. A record of all funds received shall be given to the financial secretary (laughs) and treasurer. Funds received shall be deposited promptly in accordance with the procedures established by the Finance Committee. The Financial Secretary shall keep records of the contributions and payments. Okay, so here's an offering. you got to have two people that are not in the same household. Count it. Um, and then make sure it's deposited promptly. It's not just hanging out in the church somewhere. Take it to the bank so there's not some kind of... 
incident that oh no happen. we lost three yeah. weeks of giving because yeah. we only take it in once a month no as soon as you get it take it in deal with it put it where it needs to be and then they keep records makes sense five the church treasurer shall distribute all monies contributed to cause contributed to cause represented causes cause okay well, okay let me start over five the church treasurer shall distribute all monies contributed to causes re- represented in the local church budget and such other funds and contributions as the church council may determine. The treasurer shall remit each month to the conference treasurer all denominational and conference bene- benevolence funds then on hand. The church treasurer shall make regular and detailed reports on funds received and expended to the fir- church to the to the finance committee and the church council. The treasurers shall be adequately bonded. My throat is struggling and your brain is struggling. Right, yes. No, it's just not good. <laughs> it's too early in the morning for this. So the financial secretary is the one responsible for counting the funds in the point above. Now the treasurer is responsible for dispersing the funds. And they disperse it regularly in accord- and in accordance with how the church council has adopted a budget to reflect. Okay, that last line, the treasurer shall be adequately bonded. What does that mean by that? That is a kind of, um, it's not a legal status. Well, I think it is a legal status, but I think it's more than that where uh, if something gets handled wrong with the money, in a sense, the church is kind of protected uh, legally. There's a, there's a limit to which the church itself, I think, can, can be sued if funds are mishandled. Okay. That's me speaking out of my depth, by the way, so... Um, you can look up a definition online, and I won't be offended. <laughs> Point six, the finance committee shall establish written financial policies to document the internal controls of the local church. The written financial policies should be reviewed for adequacy and effectiveness annually by the finance committee and submitted as a report to the charge conference annually. So depending on the size of the church, you have a bunch of funds coming and a bunch of funds going. There are different people that can decide how it's spent. There's only one person that can actually spend it, but they're often reporting to other people that are responsible for those funds. You need to have a protocol written up, counting, uh, internal accounting protocols, I think is what we call them, uh, that determines how money is spent and overseen. Each fund is different. So if you don't have something like that, then you start having cowboys just saying, spend it this way. I'm not accountable to anybody. Right. Okay. Point seven. The committee shall make provision for an annual audit of the financial statements of the local church and all its organizations and accounts. The committee shall make a full and complete report to the annual charge conference. A local church audit is defined as an independent evaluation of the financial reports and records and the internal controls of the local church by a qualified person or persons. The audit shall be conducted to reasonably verify the accuracy and reliability of financial reporting, determine whether assets are being safeguarded, and determine compliance with local law, local church policies and procedures, and the transitional book of doctrines and discipline. The audit may include, one, a review of the cash and investment reconciliations. It better include that. Point two, interviews with the treasurer, financial secretary, pastors, financial committee chair, business manager, those who count the offerings, church secretary, etc., with inquiries regarding compliance with existing written financial policies and procedures. 
Three, a review of journal entries and authorized check signers for each checking and investment account. And four, other procedures requested by the finance committee. The audit shall be performed by an audit committee composed of persons unrelated to the persons listed in two above or by independent certified public accountant, accounting firm, or equivalent. All of that is hopefully self-explanatory. Yeah, so uh, just have an audit. Here's how you do the audits. Here's who can do the audits. Do it every year. Yeah, yeah. And so an easy way to do this, I don't know why more churches don't do this, but when we've done it in the past, we just contact another church and say, we'll audit your stuff if you'll audit ours. And then you just get all your Hmm. stuff together and have a a meeting at the church. It takes a few hours. you got to read... They have booklets that are designed to lead you through the process, but it's it's real easy. I scratch your back, you scratch mine, we all serve each other. And you don't have to pay some random CPA. institution outside the church. Yeah. yeah, Nothing against CPAs, but it's just like a right. lot of churches aren't made of money, so right. if you can yeah. get something done in a decent way for free with people of good faith, that's really better. It's a good idea. I never thought about that. I don't think it was my idea, but I, I gladly Well, I wasn't giving you credit, it. but... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I think we're in point eight. Yes. The committee shall recommend to the church council proper depositories for the church's funds. Funds received shall be deposited promptly in the name of the local church. Point nine, contributions designated for specific causes and objects shall be promptly forwarded according to the intent of of the donor and shall not be retained or used for any other purpose, obviously. You hate that you have to put that in writing, but there are a lot of churches that really are icky in there. Yeah, yeah. It, that's that's problematic. So I'm, I'm going to give to this church, here's exactly what I want it to go to, and then somebody else in the church says, uh, no, we're going to use it for something else. That's a recipe for problems. And you'd think it'd only be small churches that are guilty of this, oh. but I remember uh, the Oklahoma Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church couldn't pass an audit for a few years in a row. And then even when they did, they had all these directed funds, which they did not know what they were designated for. They had different that's, records they couldn't reconcile. Together. That's the Daniel Dennison interview that you're talking about, right? I think he did speak to that, but yes. that that's from multiple sources, uh, actually. Yeah. yeah. Point 10... After the budget of the local church has been approved, additional appropriations or changes in the budget must be approved by the church council. So you can't call an audible. It has to be public and adopted by the authoritative body of the church. Point 11, the the committee shall prepare at least annually a report to the church council of all designated funds that are separate from the current expense budget. And that's the finance committee, folks. That's that's all there is to the finance committee. Anything to be said about trustees or finance? No. It's, uh, again, like if you've never been on a church council in one of those specific areas, it's nice to have like a, a guidebook Absolutely. to go to. So yeah. there you go. There are other committees that you can have, and they're stipulated in uh, paragraph 348, other administrative and program committees. The church council may recommend such other committees it deems advisable whose members are to be elected by the charge conference, including, but not limited to, Communications Committee, Discipleship Committee, Records and History Committee, Missions Committee, Memorial Gifts Committee, and ministries that address the unique needs and interests of both women and men. If I had looked at this a little more closely, I would have underlined um, whose members are to be elected by the charge conference, seems to me that that was put in place to keep churches from doing anything outside of the charge conference. Having any 
structures or authorities that are not reporting to the charge conference. Anyone who's put in a position of power and authority in the local church is supposed to be adopted by the charge conference. That's what it seems like to me. But the charge conference would be the church members to begin with, unless there's more than one church, right? Well, it also includes retired clergy and the presiding elder. Oh, okay. So the people in the church, depending on how many churches there are, the district superintendent. Yeah, whoever is on the church council. So it's not all the people. That's a church conference, right. but a charge conference is the church council reps plus retired clergy plus the presiding elder. Okay. So they're... The, and the presiding elder can just straight up say, no, you can't do that. He kind of, he or she has uh, veto authority, I think. Uh, Were there instances in the United Methodist Church where the charge conference was not, it was just like up to the church conference or uh, the council who was elected, or is this a difference at all? I don't think it is different. I think okay. they've tried to make the charge conference the place where the... Uh, the church is amenable to the higher structures. So this is how the annual conference through the DS or presiding elders compels them to be in compliance. I guess that means the DS would definitely have to be like more involved with the local church. Cause they, I mean, it doesn't make any sense that they would be there and then just like not know the people who are being elected. So they just kind of, they have to be more involved where I don't feel like they were that involved. No, they the definitely haven't been involved that way for a long time. Yeah, there's not a scenario where DS goes... Well, every now and again, if a church has been complaining to a, a DS, hey, we've got these problem people here, yeah. they might know the names of problem people that are then forcing their way onto committees. But generally speaking, no, they're not going to know the people. And right. maybe once upon a time, DSs did. Um, it's Yeah, it's, it's not a perfect thing, but it does kind of... If there have been habitual problematic people, they can stand there and say, mm, no, there's this guy's got a record. We can't have him in this capacity. Okay. Okay, so that was the section on um, uh, uh, the church structure. Now we're going to move mm -hmm. on to the... Connection, uh, connection, connectional, connectional funding. You poor man. I, yeah, no, I'm struggling, struggling today. We're both struggling. All right, so this deals with uh, the finances of the denomination. Uh, we are... This one's real short. Yeah, it's pretty short. So we, I think we have time for this. Oh, yeah, we can knock this one out. Okay. Um, paragraph 349, local church connectional funding. Here we go. Point one. Each local church of the GMC contributes financially to the ministry of the church beyond the local church through connectional funding. The local church treasurer or designee shall calculate the amount to be... Re remitted in accordance with paragraph 347.3 and point four by January 30th each calendar year based on the prior year's local church operating income. You said that like that's important. So yeah, individual churches are expected to calculate what they're to give once right. upon a time. They so connectional, be, let's, let's go back. Connectional giving is the giving that the local church is giving to the annual conference to and the, or general conference. Both. Okay. Yeah. So, and once upon a time, we would get reports from the annual conference or the general conference. No, it was the annual conference that would calculate what was owed. Now they're saying, you generate this based on figures you get from 347.3 and .4. And then it, it's going to okay, get more so explicit about how you calculate this. They're taking the year previous income and then determining what the next year's... Yeah. 
it, it was called apportionments in the United Methodist Church. Now it's called connectional giving. But yeah. Okay, so let's, let's say so we're in 2023 right now. Yeah. So they're saying when we get into like 2024, January of 2024, you're going to look at 2023, say this is what you guys brought in and this is how much you owe for 2023 or for 2024. Yeah, you're so what they're going to say is you need to be making monthly remittances to the general conference and to the annual conference based on the prior year's financial reportings. Okay. And so if there's more then we can correct that as the funds come in. No, I don't think there's going to be any correction. I I I think I think there's just going to be imperfection. Like you can't perfectly predict What's going to come in, but you, based on the previous years, uh, you can kind of project, and so you'll just pay that, and then the next year will reflect what was in the previous year. Gotcha. Okay. So if the one month you get more than the month previous, it's just going to reflect next year. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It'll all figure in eventually. Okay. Like I said, uh, and there's I, a reason they did that. I don't get real particular about this because I have a hard time imagining that they're going to crack down and say, you were one percentage point off here, and yeah, you better hopefully. give that money, or you know, or you were 1% over, so here's a check back. Yeah. Interestingly, Jeff Pospisil, whenever he was the, finance, uh, finance, the treasurer for the Dakota's annual conference, they had an excess of money that they didn't need, and so they sent that back to local churches. They said, hmm. we don't need it. You you do. You're the ones doing ministry. Have right. it. Good for that. That's the only case I've ever heard of that happening, and I'd be interested to know if that's ever going to happen in the GMC. Yeah. And, and we'll see. Point we'll see. two. Connectional funding shall not include amounts due from the local church for insurance benefits and pension contributions for its pastors and any additional staff who are Part of such plans of the GMC, such payments for insurance benefits and pension contributions for the plan participants are due in addition to connectional funding remittances by the local church. So it's saying you're already going to be spending these dollars on things that are connectional in nature. You, your pastor is a part of a retirement and pension plan that is tied with others. That doesn't that that's just owed. That's right. not part of what you're sending for apportionments or connectional giving. Don't figure that in. Okay. Point three, in calculating the amount of connectional funding to be remitted, A, the following items are to be included in local church operating income. Giving from identified and not identified donors, investment income utilized for operations, building use fees and rental income, and other unrestricted operating income. Unrestricted is a key word there. If it is restricted, then it doesn't figure into this. Okay, restricted meaning like this is the per- the person's giving this money and this is specifically what they want it to go for. Yeah, a, okay. a directed or designated fund, yeah. So all of the money that comes in for these specific things, that's what's counted in what you consider the connectional giving for the annual and general yeah. conference. Okay. Yeah, very good. All okay. right, B, the following items are to be excluded from local church operating income, benevolences, so outside ministry supported by the local church. So if you give money to uh, some kind of other 501c3, yeah. um, that doesn't count towards the money that's going to the annual conference. Sounds like that to me. Okay. Makes sense. Capital campaign receipts, um, borrowed funds, fundraisers for non-operating expenses, receipts for reduction of indebtedness, memorials, 
endowments, and bequests, whether restricted or non-restricted. Receipts for GMC special mission programs, grants and support from other organizations, sales of land, buildings, or other church assets, and other non-operating income received. Okay, so if you sale, sell property for whatever reason, yeah, that does not that's not included in the amount of money that you made the church made this year, and we have to then send to the annual general conference. It that's, would seem so. Okay, yeah. For some reason, my mind is going to the death tax uh, uh, conversation, whether or not you pay property on uh, the liquidation of assets when a person dies. That's a political thing that left and right goes back and forth about. But yeah, there you can imagine people saying, look, we had to liquidate this land because we're in a budget deficit, and now you're taxing us based on this? Yeah. You know, So it just keeps local churches from getting a bad taste in their mouth from having to to get rid of property. Right. It's you just don't have the, the annual and general conference don't have their hand out like, oh, we saw you we saw you sold some property. Where's ours at? <laughs> like that's yeah, it's nice. It kind of kind of gets rid of well, one of the one of the um accusations by the UMC people is uh, they're just out it for out out they're in for the the money and the property and whatnot. And then right. obviously this is completely the opposite. Yeah. You would expect saying, them to, hey, we want our money from the Sell, sell of land or property, and they're yeah. saying, no, we don't want it. That's yours. Very good. Yeah, I think that's a great way to interpret it. Yeah. yeah. Point four, the amount remitted by the local church for connectional funding shall be calculated as follows. Point A, for the general church connect connectional funding, so that's the whole denomination, 1.5% of local church operating income, and then it re uh, sends you back to paragraph 347.3. So that's the general church that is not your annual conference. So there are going to be two directions you're sending money. Annual conference, point B. Where a local church has affiliated with the GMC apart from its previous annual conference assignment or was not previously part of an annual conference, 5% of local church operating income. That I do not think is being maintained. I think they've called an audible on that. So what figures in here is this was written before the protocol for peaceful separation and reconciliation before that got shot down. This assumes that it gets adopted. So there was a, a notion that entire annual conferences could and would join the GMC. That's one of the things that got thrown out by the Judicial Council. They said, no, an entire annual conference cannot join. Every individual church has to go through the disaffiliation policy and join as individuals. Here it's saying... For those that don't come in as part of an annual conference but come in on their own, they just have to give 5% of their operating income to their annual conference. That is not what's happened. What's happened is at each convening annual conference, they have decided what percentage they're going to ask for, some going as low as 0%, mm. others going as high as I think ours was a little over 4%, but I, I could be wrong on that. Ours is in the Heartland Annual Conference. That's right. Okay. So point C, for annual conference connectional funding where a local church has affiliated with the GMC together with the annual conference, of which it was a, a part. So that's not ever going to happen. That, that doesn't happen, but what we have in writing here. The percentage of local church operating income shall be determined by the annual conference at the time it affiliates with the GMC. Annual conferences that align with the Global Methodist Church must establish a schedule by which they will reduce the percentage of local church operating income remitted for annual conference connectional funding to a maximum of 10% of local church operating income 
within five years of aligning with the Global Methodist Church. So because annual conferences didn't join as annual conferences, this is not applicable? Right. Okay. But it was imagining that some annual conferences have higher apportionments than 10%, and they were going to make them go down to at least 10%. Gotcha. Okay. Point five, the percentages in 347.4 shall only be increased upon the vote of two-thirds of the Transitional Leadership Council or the convening general conference. So they can make apportionments higher, but it has to be a two-thirds vote of the TLC or the general conference. I wonder which one would be easier to put together, but they they are very much guarded, guided by an ethos of stewardship, not spending any more than need be. Right. Good for them. Yeah, good for them. Point six, each month the local church shall remit one-twelfth of the annual sum of general church connectional funding and annual conference connectional funding to the TLC or its designee. So in the UMC, there was an expectation, just get it in by the deadline, and it doesn't matter if you do it in an installments or all at once. Here, no, we need monthly payments. So especially in this beginning period where they're not very liquid, they need regular cash flow. Right. Yeah, and if they're going to be operating on a, a smaller budget, yeah, that makes sense. Like yeah. you can't just wait until the end of the year to get it. If you join the GMC and your church is not making regular monthly payments, you really need to to step up and do that because they are very much hamstrung in what they can do by cash flow. Point seven: the Transitional Leadership Council or its designee may designate a local church as a missional church and exempt such a church from paying general church or a annual conference funding connectional funding for up to five years from the date of designation. Missional churches shall be church plants, church restarts, or churches located in or serving economically disadvantaged communities. I know that they're also willing to give this status to churches that had to pay out the nose to get out of the UMC and need to spend a couple years recovering. So if that's the case, they have forms that they need you to fill out. You need to talk with them. You can't just say, I declare bankruptcy, (sighs) if you know that reference. I'm a genius. Um, but uh, you can't just declare we're a missional church. You need to get the TLC on board or your conference leadership, and then once you have that status, then you don't need to pay anything. For five years, up to five years. Up to five years, yeah. yeah. If you can't get if you can't get your church's act together in five years, they're going to facilitate a conversation about if you need to combine with another church or get a different pastor or something, but five years should be enough. Point eight... The pastor and leadership of the local church shall interpret connectional funding to the members of the local church so that connectional funding is embraced by such membership and regularly share information with the members of the local church to educate and interpret such connectional funding. So when we covered the finance committee, the finance committee was responsible for giving the congregation a a financial theology of the importance of tithing but now the pastor and church leadership is responsible for making sure that people understand connectional giving, why we do it, where it goes, why they should feel good about it. Okay. Yeah. Fine. Somebody's got to do it. Here's who does it. Yeah. And then, well, what, what that puts on the denomination is you better make sure you're spending the money in ways that people feel good about. You know, So if it's going to bishop salaries then the bishop should be benefiting the local church. So they're going, man, we're really glad we're glad we're paying his or her salary, you know? Or if it's going to conference office stuff, well, make sure that the conference office is benefiting the local church. So mm. that's the two-way street that the UMC failed at because oh, yeah. it just built this 
self-feeding bureaucracy that gimme gimme the gmc is hopefully going to be able to say here's the dollars you've given us here's what we've done with it aren't you glad and mm -hmm. we're supposed to be able to say yeah we really are thank you for benefiting us okay good for them yeah yeah great okay Last point. Point nine, the failure of a local church to remit connectional funding in full as calculated annually may result in the Transitional Leadership Council or designee proceeding under paragraph 354 to involuntarily disaffiliate the local church from the GMC. Full stop. <laughs> Just it. You're not paying your abortion connectional giving. Yeah. We're going to disaffiliate you. Yeah. Yeah. You're not paying your bills. We're cutting your electricity off. And so a lot of people would look at that and say, well, great. You know, we don't, we don't like you breathing down our necks anyway. Yeah. But what you have to understand, what we have to understand, is that the incentive structure is completely different from the global Methodist church from what it was in the UMC. In the UMC it was, we have this trust clause, we can move your pastor, we can do a lot of things to make you very uncomfortable. Here, there's none of that threat. It's just, we'll set you loose. If you don't want to be part of us, if you don't feel good about it, then we don't feel good about you, and we'll put you out. And so that means that the only people on board think that they have something to gain from being part of the GMC, which, of course, they should. But I think that this will make a long-term impact in the kind of culture that we share that's not under compulsion or coercion, but it's a, it's a confederacy of the willing. And then I think it's really great. You know, I really hope they use this. I hope that over time they just discern some fellowships really aren't in it. So why don't you step out? And we won't ask anything of you. You don't ask anything of us. And in the meantime, everyone who shows up for annual conference, everybody who's a part of the conversation, is paying into it, has skin on the game, in the game, and they're happy about that. No, no comment. Like I, the, sounds great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, we've reached the end of what I think we need to uh, cover today. So, is there anything else that you think? Any closing reflections on these two sections that we've concluded? Not really. Other, I mean, it's just like last week. Like, there's a reason these are there, and just nice to have a guidebook if you're not sure of what to do. So, yeah. it's really well, the the little sermon I would give anyone who watched or listened to this is make sure that in your annual conference, y'all are having the conversation about how it is that the conference structure or the denominational structure can benefit local churches in ways that actually matter to the local church. So. So far, what I see is annual conferences being very invested in putting together conferences like special conferences, educational and motivational stuff, and big worship experiences. And I think there are some churches that very much care about that and want that. But is there any other way that conferences and the structure they create, the funds that they collect, can benefit local churches such that if they get kicked out, they're really missing out on a lot? That is the kind of conversation that we should be having in earnest right now. And that doesn't need to be a top-down thing decided at next year's convening conference. That should be stuff that annual conferences are implementing right now to, to give a sense of purpose and shared mission across the new connections. So be praying and thinking about that. We're going to conclude now. I hope uh, you, you have a good Thanksgiving. I'm going to try and put this out uh, on Thanksgiving Day, but Thanksgiving is a way of life. So I, I hope you're, uh, you have a lot to be thankful for. If you're thankful for this podcast, then there are ways that you can support it, namely by going to plainspoken.locals.com and signing up to regularly give. Uh, but you can also just like and share and comment on this. And any engagement, I think, is to the benefit of everybody in the GMC. So uh, thanks. I'm thankful for you, and I'll see you later. Bye.